The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Today, on Science for the People, we're talking about superhumans. I mean, those people that seem to have a little something extra in the brain, that is. Today, we'll be learning about the supersensory and memory abilities unique to people with synesthesia and hyperthymesia. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Today, we're talking with Dr. Craig Stark, a researcher in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at the University of California, Irvine, and director of the Facility for Imaging and Brain Research. His research focuses on understanding how information is stored in memory so that past experiences can influence our subsequent behaviors. Today, he's here to tell us about a unique condition he's researched over the years. It's called hyperthymesia, or in layman's terms, highly superior autobiographical memory. And the people who have it have remarkable memories for the past. Dr. Craig Stark, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be here. So just to get us started, could you tell us what highly superior autobiographical memory is? So um, HSAM, or the highly superior autobiographical memory, is an ability possessed by some individuals to remarkably recall details of the events of their lives. It's what we as researchers call autobiographical memory. So it's really the story of your life. It's not sort of necessarily facts, things like D.C. is the capital of the United States, but it's things like remembering, oh, yeah, on December 17th, 1997, I had dinner with so-and-so at this restaurant and we talked about, you know, where their kid was going to college or something like this. It's this effortless ability to be able to retrieve these events from their lives. So. How rare is it? How many people have this condition that you know of? That's a, that's a great question um, because there are actually a lot of layers to that question. Um, the simple answer is that we know that it's rare uh, because it struck us as very odd when we first identified people with this, with this ability. Um, we've identified and screened through and figured out, you know, 50, 60 or so people that have this ability. But that's not to say that there are only 50 or 60 people who actually have this ability in the, in the world. Those are just the ones we've been able to identify. And those are the ones that we've identified by the ways in which we sort of define these people. That actually gets into something we want to get into a little later. I mean, how do we actually classify somebody as having this ability? And is that limiting the uh, uh, sort of kinds of exceptional memory abilities that we look at? But short answer is we know that it's very rare. We've identified about 50 or so people who really have it. Well, why don't you unpack that for us, how you go on diagnosing and identifying HSAMs? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is a really interesting kind of uh, thing to try to study as as a researcher here, because you know people have to identify themselves to us. If we just went out and said, "Okay, look, let me test a hundred people or a thousand people," we wouldn't find anybody with this ability. And so they have to hear about our research, and they have to contact us which opens up all sorts of things in terms of, well, are there a lot of people who have the ability who just wouldn't ever contact us, even if they did. But 
we go through, once people do contact us, we go through a series of uh, screening questionnaires in which we start asking them about, uh, you know, for example, famous dates in, uh, in their lifetime to see if they remember what happened on that day or when that famous event actually happened. And once they go through a series of, of questionnaires and score well enough on it, well beyond what you or I would score on this, we can actually classify them as having this ability. So uh, you mentioned that they excel in these memories of the past, um, but it, it can be memories that are not necessarily uh, specific to them, right? It, it seems like uh, memories of things that happened on specific dates you mentioned. Yes, things that happened on specific dates, but we intentionally choose dates that were you know, very big, had very big sorts of events. Uh, you know, so for example, we might, you know, choose something, uh, you know, day in which there was a, you know, massive stock market crash or something like this, where if this were something that if you actually remembered the days and dates, you know, vividly, you would remember that, oh, yes, well, that was Wednesday, such and such a day. You or I would remember that, oh, yeah, well, that was really, really bad when that thing happened but not even necessarily know exactly what day. They'll then be able to tell you, oh, yes, well, of course, that was on Wednesday, January 17th. And by the way, on that day, I did this and this and this. So they'll only be able to tell you about those big events if it somehow entered into their personal life story. If it's something that they didn't care about at all and didn't pay attention to, even though it was a, a fairly big event, it wouldn't actually enter into their memory. So it really does come down to their own personal life story. So, for example, if I asked you, what did you do yesterday? Well, how about this? What did you do yesterday? <laughs> it's, it's taking me a second. I did some work, did some interviews, and I, I uh, did some programming. <laughs> okay. And I don't need to sort of like pry into your life here on a, uh, you know, on an actual podcast, <laughs> but I'm assuming that you would be able to then, you know, if I asked you, you know, what kind of programming we were doing or who you interviewed, you'd be able to then tell me, oh, yeah, I interviewed this person and I was writing a, a program to analyze this data or, or something like that. And great, you'd be able to remember the events of the day not necessarily in a you know perfectly linear form and there are certainly a lot of gaps in everything in the day you don't remember every minute of that day by any means but you could tell me the sort of the soundbite version of of what happened on that day right that's the kind of thing that they can do but going back for decades so pretty much any day not 100% but pretty darn close they can tell you that kind of thing that you or I might be able to say of what we did yesterday or the day before or maybe even a week or so ago they can tell you for decades. So uh, is this something that these individuals are born with or, or does it arise later on? Is it due to environmental factors or brain damage? Yeah, that's another phenomenal question and one that we've been trying to answer, but it's a, it's a tough one to answer. What the people tell us is that they first noticed it um, typically in their early adolescence. You know, some are called 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, that's not to say it's the first time that was like when it began, Mm -hmm. it could be, or it could also be that, well, that's when they noticed they were different than other people, that other people didn't have this ability. And a number of them describe that they're a little confused when they realize that this isn't how everybody else's memory actually works. Cause to them, it seems perfectly normal and perfectly routine. 
And we're not going to know. I mean, if you're colorblind, you don't know you're colorblind until you take a test and you realize other people can read something that you can't. If you need glasses, I remember when I was a kid, I needed glasses. I had no idea until for, you know, grins, I put on my friend Andrew's glasses and I said, oh my gosh, this is the way the world is supposed to look. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Wasn't an idiot. Well, maybe I was, but not necessarily for that. It was still, though, this this kind of thing that so we know that it, it comes on board for them in the way that they notice it in early adolescence. It could very well be that there are some developmental or environmental triggers that really bring this on. A number of them do describe, you know, traumatic events of their childhood, not in terms of, you know, getting in a car wreck and hitting the head or something like that, but, but more of an emotional kind of trauma. Um, and this may be an instigating kind of, of factor. They don't all, you know, describe this, but a number of them do describe a real fear when they were young of, of forgetting, of losing the information. And so the first one who identified herself to, uh, Jim McGaw, um, you know, would keep diaries. She would never actually need to go and look at the diaries, but it, she described it as a very stressful kind of thing to not have written the information down. Mm -hmm. So she would write it down in the diary and then she could, you know, relax and then move on to the sort of next bits of information. But it, it points though to this real need to hold on to it. And there are others who have described similar kinds of things in their life, the real fear of forgetting, which may then drive them to do things with these, this information that the rest of us don't do. Um, that can also be contributing to it. So, I mean, you know, I, I've given you about a half a dozen different possibilities. Well, you started off with a question with about a mm -hmm. half a dozen different possibilities. And the truth is we don't know what contribution each of these is actually making. They're all probably going to be factoring into this. Um, you know, that they may be predisposed genetically to be able to do something like this or to have the kinds of habits that would help drive this kind of ability. And then you toss in some instigating factors during development in the troubled times that are, you know, adolescence. And this then pushes them further down that road to something then that snowballs into the kind of thing that we actually see in these individuals. The truth is, we honestly don't know. When we take a look at their brain scans, we do see that there are some differences and differences in, you know, kinds of things that seem as if they might be related to this by, by other work. But it's not like their brains are, you know, twice as large or their hippocampus is five times as big or, or anything like this. No, it's, you know, the differences are there and they're subtle, but we don't know if they started off that way and that's why they can do this. Or by virtue of doing this, they have changed their brain in that way. It's a classic chicken and egg problem. You know, you've mentioned it seems that these individuals may be using mnemonic strategies pretty early on. And I guess you're getting at the question of whether the fact that they're using these strategies is changing their brain and, and leading to them their superior memory or whether the superior memory came first. Yeah. Well, we have to be careful, though, when we use the term mnemonic strategies. Okay. Um, when most people use that that term, they think of things like the, the mnemonists, the memory champs, folks like Joshua Four, who wrote Moonwalking with Einstein there, um, who are perfectly average, everyday kinds of kinds of people who have used by using very conscious, overt strategies, 
learn how to do incredible feats like memorize a deck of cards in 30 seconds or something like this. And they're using very, very clear strategies. They give, you know, for example, each card becomes a specific character. So the ace of spades, maybe a black dog, who knows? Um, and then they use that information to then go and come up with interesting ways to tie these things together to be able to memorize the order of that, that deck of cards. Um, HSAM individuals don't seem to do anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's it, to them, it is completely effortless in their retrieval, and they are not going through and necessarily saying, "Oh, okay, I'm going to remember today I did this, so I'm going to make another little story out of it. I'm going to elaborate on it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that." It any sort of mnemonic strategy that they're doing seems to be unconscious in the form of you know. So, for example, if they are um, you know, concerned about this, they may think about the information a lot more just naturally because they're thinking about uh, what they did that day, what they did the day before, how, geez, what was the last time that you and I talked and, and what did we talk about on this? And, and But by doing that, they're automatically rehearsing the information. They're tying it in with other bits of information. They're giving themselves what we call spaced practice or thinking about something at different points in time. And so, yes, in some ways they're employing these mnemonic strategies, but not in any conscious, deliberate kind of way. You know, just as as you're going through life, if you think about something that happened before, you're going to actually remember that and you'll be able to remember it better a week later by virtue of having thought about it right now. But you're not saying to yourself, I'm going to remember this now by giving myself another active rehearsal. And in fact, I will space it out by at least a week from the last time I thought about it, you know. That's the kind of thing that they're not doing, that your memory champs are explicitly doing. Nowadays, there's a general consensus that memory is malleable, and and it's Mm -hmm. not a a snapshot of past events. Like, it used to be a a model of a storage cabinet where you filed memories away, but it's rather more akin to an editable template, per se. Uh, Could you elaborate Mm -hmm. on this this more current and flexible model of memory? Yeah, so we've known for a long time that that memory is is malleable or or plastic. In fact, I give a, a number of talks to judges and lawyers and uh, and other professionals on this because it's it's come up a lot in eyewitness testimony. Um, we know that your past experiences shape actually how you perceive the world here and now, and they definitely also uh, shape your memory of of what's happened. So in fact, Frederick Bartlett in 1934 even said, you know, memory is not the re-excitation of innumerable fixed lifeless ideas and fragmentary traces. Um, so, okay, we don't really write like that anymore, but he said it's it's not re-exciting this huge number of fixed and lifeless ideas. So your notion of the file cabinet, that it just went in there and it stayed and it's not going to change. He said instead it's an imaginative reconstruction or construction. And he goes on to say that it's built out of a whole active mass of organized past reactions or experiences, you know, um, but it's based on our past experiences and how they've shaped us and to just a couple little details that are stored in image or language form. That was 1934. So, you know, memory researchers have known about this kind of thing for for a good long time. Um, but it's really getting into the public perception of memory a lot, a lot more now, which is which is very good for things like, you know, uh, court cases. You know, so but we know then that it's it's not like you can just go back and hit rewind on the video and play it back. 
all that information didn't get in in the first place. And what's happening is you're then running it through a system that has been shaped over years. And this is where this notion of implicit bias and everything comes in as well to alter then the contents of the memory. We also know that when you retrieve something, you put it into this malleable kind of state so that you can update the contents of that memory so that next time when you remember it, you don't necessarily remember, oh, those, the original one, then that first time I thought about it and the second time I thought about it. No, you you pull back a, you know, a conglomeration of all of these kinds of things, which is actually really adaptive. I mean, if you had to, every time you had to go and try to remember something, if you had to sort through the thousand other times, you know, it's come up, that would be a ridiculous kind of system. It would take far too long, far too much uh, um, space inside your head just to store all of this here. Mm-hmm. So we think, though, that this reconstructive aspect and this malleable aspect is a real feature of memory that lets us extract what is actually meaningful, the sort of the knowledge, the wisdom of it all here. So and one of the interesting HSAMs, things, yeah, when they yeah, have the HSAM so, so much access to their memories, is, is it like a, a file cabinet or is it still just as malleable as, as ours? Oh, okay. So we do know, um, we know a number of things on that. One, we can't lose sight of the fact that they are not storing everything that has happened. You know, if I were to ask you, you know, what, how many bites it took you to eat your lunch yesterday? Well, of course you can't tell me. Um, so it's not again, but if you had a video, you could go back and you could actually do that entire thing and count the exact number. But that's not what was stored. What was stored was you had lunch and maybe, you know, it was a sandwich or whatever it was. Um, so what gets stored for them are the autobiographical events, that sort of sound bite of the day, and that's it. So it's really not actually an insane amount of information because they can tell you what happened in that day in, you know, a couple of minutes. So the entire day getting from, of you know, 24 hours getting compressed down into, you know, a description that takes a couple of minutes. So one aspect is, is yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot more than the rest of us, but don't lose sight of the fact that, uh, uh, it's not everything. You give them a list mm-hmm. of 20 words to memorize and they don't do any better than the rest of us. So, um, so, so there's that. Those exactly. Skills. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't extend out beyond their own autobiographical memory. And that really puts a limit on, on how bad, you know, the problem actually gets here. And so with them though, we also know that they are susceptible to a lot of the same kinds of false memory manipulations that the rest of us are. So there's a classic one called the Dies-Rodiger-McDermott task or DRM task. And in this one, you read people a list of words. So it has like class, pain, ledge, shade, sill, and it gives you everything but the word window. Later on, you ask, hey, what words did I show you before? Or did I show you glass? And the interesting thing is that in all of us here, our memory for the word window, which is the highest associate of all the ones that was shown there, but wasn't shown, our memory for window is typically better than our memory for anything else on that, at least uh, certainly when you give it a day or so worth of a, worth of a delay. Mm-hmm. People will freely recall, oh yeah, window was on the list, I'm the most confident about that one, and, and all this kind of thing. And people with HSAM do that same thing. So in a number of paradigms, uh, misinformation paradigms, this DRM task, and even this thing called the, uh, the crashing test, um, they show typical levels of false memories. Now, you may have noticed in those, they're not really tapping into their real strength of autobiographical memory. 
I mean, look, if I give them a list of 20 unrelated words, they don't remember them any better than the rest of us. Why would they do, you know, uh, be immune on this everything but the word window uh, DRM kind of task? And that is, you know, an interesting kind of thing in that they are they're very certain that their autobiographical memories are accurate. Um, and on that, it's, it's a tougher thing for us to, to get at. We know when we try to verify, uh, the details of their, their memory. Um, when we have an external source that we can back it up against, I mean, they're like 98, 99% accurate. So their autobiographical things do seem to be quite accurate. Um, Again, though, there's a very limited amount of, um, it's not like you can say how many buttons were on the, you know, on his shirt when you had lunch or something like this. Just there's a huge amount then that isn't, you know, inside there and there'd be no reason for it to be. But it, you know, as I say, it does seem as if they're open to, uh, the same kinds of, uh, false memory sorts of paradigms that, uh, we've demonstrated in others. So clearly there are definitely a lot of similarities in, in how their memories process information, uh, compared to ours, just not with respect to autobiographical memories. So what do we know about the, bi- the biology behind this condition. Yeah. So our ability to get at the biology, you know, comes from things like doing MRI scans. And when we've done this in, in individuals with HSM, we can look at structural changes. So physically, how big are different regions? Uh, we can look at uh, this diffusion imaging, which gets us at the connectivity between regions, and we can try to do functional kinds of imaging. What we found is that with the structural and diffusion imaging, there do seem to be a number of regions or pathways that show some difference between them and uh, uh, sort of matched control individuals. So the one that, you know, for example, one that seems to be uh, the most reliable out of this or a very reliable one is this thing, the uncinate fasciculus, which serves as a communication pathway between structures in the medial temporal lobe, which we know are critical for this kind of you know, event-based memory and structures in the, uh, in the frontal lobe, which again are going to be critical for, you know, this kind of complex, uh, uh, form of memory. So we do start to see that there are some differences there. We've been hampered a little bit in our ability to look at the functional aspect of this, um, for two reasons. One is uh, these are expensive studies to run, but the second is, Really trying to come at it from the skeptical uh, scientist point of view and saying, okay, so what would the functional study actually tell us? Let's say that their brain lights up even more in an autobiographical memory test when we ask them what happened a year ago versus we ask you what happened a year ago. All right, well, they remembered all sorts of details and you didn't remember anything. So autobiographical regions lit up. Yay, exactly. It's not really all that exciting a kind of thing. And and what, let's say new regions light up. Well, okay, that sounds like it's an interesting sort of thing, but... You know, in our, in our imaging, there's always a problem of the, the signals are always faint and weak. And we look at a lot of events and a lot of trials and a lot of people, and we then try to pull out these weak signals from the noise. And if they're remembering just 10 times as many details as the rest of us here, well, something that for the rest of us might have been just below that threshold, they've got a lot more information, and so it'll be above threshold, it'll be a nice clearer thing, and so it looks like a new region has come online, and yet it's not. We're still using it in the rest of us, but it was just a weak enough thing that we couldn't detect. Now, uh, having a strong 
memory for episodes in my life is something I I completely suck at. I have friends that that say that they remember, they seem to remember more of my life than I do. So this has always been pretty fascinating to me. But how do people with superior memory feel about it and that they cannot forget? Do they, is it a blessing or is it a curse? Yeah. So the, it, that it is it's definitely a uh, um you know double-sided uh, uh sword there in that most of them describe it as a blessing now and there's usually that that pause when i ask one of them about it and they say like is this a good or a bad thing it's it's a good thing it's a good thing now um alluding to the fact that i mean you know you remember high school at least in vague general strokes, if not the specific days, um, you know, adolescence is a, is a tough time. And if you remember every single time that somebody did, you know, something that, you know, you didn't appreciate that you felt as a slight that whatever, it's like, this could be a huge burden. In fact, the very first email sent, um, by Jill Price, the first HSAM that, uh, that, you know, we started working with here to Jim McGaw, the very first sentence of it was, I have a problem. My problem is that I remember every day of my life. So for her, it definitely was a real issue, a real problem that this keeps, you know, coming up and getting in the way. Um, for a number of others, though, they can say, yeah, there were, you know, say like these negative things, but there are these positive things and everything uh, that I can remember as well. And so it's it really is a double edged sword. So there may be, of course, advantage advantages to, to not forgetting. But it seems that uh, it may not really be good to remember everything. Um, and, and so what have we learned about from HSAM about the adaptive nature of forgetting? Yeah. Well, in some ways, the fact that HSAM isn't the norm starts to tell us that forgetting may actually be a good thing. Um, cause there, there are a couple of ways in which forgetting could be, uh, you know, could be advantageous. One is just pure, simple reproductive biology. When we start thinking about the fact that already, we are having to invest a huge amount of resources in raising children who come up without the ability to do anything for a good long time. They come in with these, uh, you know, gigantic heads and gigantic brains that need to be trained up a lot and that need to actually be delivered by a human being. Um, you know, this is starting to place limits on the size that we could actually have our brain. And so therefore, the amount of information that one could possibly actually hold on to. So there's one aspect of the adaptive story that really is just the underlying, you know, the underlying biology. But there's another aspect to the adaptive uh, um, sort of nature of, of forgetting here, in that if you if every single time, you, you know, were asked something simple like, oh, what's the capital of the United States? Or you needed to use that information. If you had to remember that hundred, thousand, five thousand, however many times this has come up in your life, if all of that came flooding back, well, this would be um, sort of a nightmare of, of data overload to have to deal with. But it's even worse than the nightmare of, of data overload what we typically want to do is abstract from these past events. So, you know, go back to our anthropological past and, and you're walking through, you know, the, the jungle or whatever here. You've got your pointed stick with you. You go into a cave and you almost get eaten by some wild animal in there and you get out alive. All right. 
what do you want to be able to take away from this information? What you want to be able to do is that next time you're coming along and you see a cave, hey, scary things, dangerous animals can live inside a cave. Don't go in there or at least have a whole bunch of buddies with pointed sticks when you go in. That's what you probably should take from this. You probably shouldn't, you know, poke your head in and say, oh, wait a minute here, that's a tiger with six stripes, and the one that attacked me before had seven stripes, so I'm going to guess that this one may be just fine until I have any other data on it. Let me go up and try to pet it. No, you know, that's a scary creature, and you should know that this could be a dangerous place, and this is how we want to have our past experience actually influence our actions in the here and now and our planning for the future. And washing away... Exactly. You know, on the one hand, on the one hand, you say, oh, wow, my memory is horrible. I forgot all of these details. On the other hand, that's exactly what we call knowledge and wisdom, the ability to abstract across a whole bunch of different things and pull out the common thread and core and use that and apply it in a situation that that all sounds pretty darn good. And that's actually what our forgetting does. We forget the details, but things that are that keep coming up over and over again. The details will differ, but that central core is the same. And that's what we actually hold on to. And that's probably adaptive for us to hold on to that. Well, unfortunately, this is all the time we have today, Dr. Stark. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about HSAM memory and forgetting with us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm certainly going to try and value my forgetfulness a little bit more from now on. Fantastic. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Craig Stark and his research, you can navigate to the website faculty.sites.uci.edu slash StarkLab. That's Stark, S-T-A-R-K. And you can find that link and more on the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jamie Ward, a researcher and professor of cognitive neuroscience in the School of Psychology at the University of Sussex in the UK. His research revolves around perceptual experience and its relation to other aspects of cognition, like memory. One way his group explores this is through the mind-boggling perceptual phenomenon of synesthesia. He has additionally written a book about this condition entitled the Frog Who Croaked Blue, Synesthesia and the Mixing of the Senses. Dr. Ward, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. So for those of us who don't know, what is synesthesia? So synesthesia is an unusual way of experiencing the world. So for some people, when they're listening to my words now, each word might have its own particular color. So it might be a kaleidoscope of colors flashing through their mind's eye. Or when they look at black letters on a page, maybe the colors shine out through the letters. For other people, when they're listening to my words, maybe the words have taste. And it's kind of like an ebb and flow of flavors on the tongue, maybe sourness, or maybe like ripe oranges, or maybe like a sausage sandwich, something quite unusual like this. 
And synesthesia comes in lots of different varieties, but really we can think of all kinds of synesthesia as having a number of characteristics. So one is that subjectively it feels like sensing something, it's like tasting, it's like having a colour experience. So it's a bit like uh, what we would call an extra sensation that's been tagged on to what we would normally have. So synesthesia is um, these conscious experiences. They're also triggered by something. So maybe a word triggers something or maybe music does. And this is what would distinguish synesthesia from, say, hallucinations. So hallucinations might occur spontaneously, but synesthesia is triggered. And one of the other characteristics of synesthesia is that they occur very automatically. So if you're a synesthete, uh, when you hear a word or read it or listen to music, the colours just appear to you. You haven't got to go and get them. And that makes synesthesia quite different from imagination where maybe you could imagine letters as being coloured, but then maybe you can change the colours of the letters, make them darker or lighter or whatever. A synesthete can't do that. The colours and the tastes and the smells or whatever it might be just appear as they are. And that is what one of the things that makes them very real to a synesthete is that they don't have this element of control over it. So for the majority of us who don't have synesthesia, it comes across as really extraordinary. But if you're a synesthete, it's perfectly normal. This is how you sense the world. And this is your own reality that your brain is constructed. So like you said, it's, it's pretty automatic and it's your own reality. But in sort of understanding what synesthetes' experiences are, um, how do they describe something that we can't fathom? I think that that's, it's very hard for people with synesthesia to kind of articulate that. And also, people with synesthesia do have somewhat different uh, experiences of it. So for some people, even just asking them, where are your synesthetic colours, for example, can mm -hmm. get a wide variety of responses. So for some people, it's kind of on a transparency between them and, I guess, the real world. So it's almost like having a window or some kind of transparency that's there. It doesn't block out uh, things. It, some describe it as kind of like looking through a shop window in which you can hmm. see beyond the window, but you can also see reflections on the window itself. And it's Where the reflections are the colours? Yeah, so the reflections would be their synesthetic colours, but hmm. the synesthetic colours don't block out reality, they're just there. Other people so, would say that other people would describe it more as a black kind of inner screen in which things appear hmm. in their mind's eye, so it's not really out there. So you've got those mixed uh, experiences. And uh, what about with other other forms like um, what would you call the music sound synesthesia? Is there a lot of individual variation in perception of that or does that seem to be more consistent? So people who experience um, synesthetic visions from music will have a very dynamic experience. So it won't just be colour, it will also be shapes and textures and these move all throughout space, almost like dancing. And, so and you can imagine if you put two synesthetes together that they would have a wild time saying, <laughs> oh, you know, for me it's like this and for you it's like uh, that. But but what you find is that, that synesthetes, they, they will agree on certain things and disagree on others. So everyone will have their own subtly <laughs> different colours and shapes. But actually, there will be some trends. So if you take a high-pitched note, a high-pitched note will tend to be smaller than a, um, a low-pitched note. Uh, it will tend to be brighter and lighter. So low-pitched hmm. notes are darker, high-pitched notes are brighter. So although for one synesthete, it might be kind of golden, for another, it might be pink. 
actually they're both probably bright and light and smaller than uh, than other musical notes. And there are these general trends that synesthetes have, and actually we all have them, even non-synesthetes too. So although we don't, most of us don't take, think of music. Um, Visually, we kind of have these associations. We just don't see it in some kind of conscious, vivid form.、Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that there is a lot of variability in in experience between any two synesthetes. They can get together and kind of talk about their experiences.、Um, so,、uh, are there any aspects um, or um, aspects of synesthesia that seem to be consistent across participants? Um, or perhaps you know, at least within a specific group, like the grapheme color synesthetes.、Uh, any colors associated with different words or letters that seem to be consistent more than chance? Yes, this seems to be true of all kinds of synesthesia that have been studied.、Um, so there is a kind of underlying structure as to how things get put together. It's not completely random,、uh, and where this structure is coming from is still a matter of debate. And there certainly are some cases who get their or their their colours are influenced by things they've seen in the environment, but these are in the minority. For a lot of synesthetes, it depends on things such as the shape of the letter. So about sixty percent of synesthetes think that the letter O or zero is white or clear,、um, and we think that this is coming from the shape of the letter. So, if you take a three-year-old who who is in effect illiterate, they haven't learnt what shapes and sounds go together. And if you show the the、um, the young child a perspex letter O, so it's colourless, and you say, "I'm looking for num- another one of these in coloured boxes,"、uh, the child will open a white box as opposed to a red or a blue box.、Um, So it's as if the、uh, the child kind of knows that the white goes with the、um, with the shape of this. Because if, instead of giving them the shape, if you say I'm looking for an O, and you just say it verbally, they don't go for the white. And this、That's、this is、crazy. the same for a number of shapes. So this is、uh, a researcher called Daphne Maurer in Canada who's looked at this. So the letter C tends to be yellow more often by chance. X tends to be black. Uh, o being white,、uh, and there are some、uh, colours that that we know are related to shape.、Um, mm-hmm. Others we're less certain about, or it might come from the language. So again, the letter R tends to be red more than expected, and this is obviously true of English synesthetes, perhaps not of other cultures、uh, mm. uh, and countries.、Uh, right. So, so there are, it comes from a whole variety、uh, of sources. For、uh, for people who have colours for words, it also depends on the spelling. So a word like psychology and philosophy and people all begin with the letter P, and these will all be the colour of the letter P. So psychology will be a P-coloured word, whatever、mm. the letter P is. So maybe P is red, and in which case psychology will be red and philosophy will be red. Interesting.、Uh, and so, so there, there are these kinds of structures for people who have synesthetic taste. The taste depends on what words sound like. So words that sound similar tend to have、um, similar tastes. Whereas the the、um, colours of words go on their、uh, their spellings, and this is probably to do with how the brain is structured. So the parts of the brain involved in colour and the shapes are next to each other in the brain, whereas the parts of the brain involved in、uh, flavours and word sounds are close to each other in the brain. So these things tend to get associated together. So again, this isn't random. This is to do with the architecture of the brain dictates. How the synesthesias、uh, develop and how they're structured, what kinds of associations, whether it's sound-based or spelling-based, and so on.
So going back to what you said about you know, the color or the letter O being associated with a white or a transparent color, um, and this is even shown in, in, in children that aren't synesthetes, it's almost like a synesthesia, something's being uncovered that is not, is not, you know, perceivable in, in the common, in most people, but there's some sort of underlying predisposition to perceiving and associating certain letters with different colors? Yes, I think that that's basically right. I think what we can say in general is that we all tend to link our senses together. We think that we've got five senses and maybe they're all separate because our eyes are separate from our ears. But as soon as all our sensory signals get to the brain, you know, they're all talking the same language and that's the language of neural uh, neurons firing and communicating with each other. Um, so by the time all our sensory information has got to the brain, all of our senses communicate with each other. And this is something that we all do. There are lots of, um, you mentioned illusions before, there are lots of multi-sensory illusions that what you see can affect what you hear uh, and vice versa. Um, taste is a very good example that um, when you look at food, the color uh, affects how you're going to, to feel about the flavor and the smell. And this is something that we all do. What synesthesia reveals is that there are certain structured rules by which the senses mix together and that these are quite universal. They arguably arise early in life, uh, maybe even as far early as infancy. So one idea is that these uh, rules for how the senses get put together are um, genetic and that we all start life as synesthetes, but some people effectively have this weakened or lose the ability to uh, to see music, for example, and synesthetes mm. retain that ability. But certainly what we know is that all of our brains are multisensory and synesthetes are multisensory in a particular unique pattern that is special to them, but it's not completely different from what we all do. It's just two different ways of being multisensory, I mm -hmm. guess would be one describing it. And, and because synesthesia is genetic to an extent, and you have, uh, I imagine, family members who both have synesthesia, um, but was, does genetics predispose uh, individuals to seeing uh, different colors or, or shapes in, in the same way, or is there more just as much variation between family members as unrelated individuals? Yeah, we don't really know what the synesthesia genes are doing, but what we can say is that if you look at family members, you don't have some families who have synesthetic tastes and some families who have synesthetic colors, for example. What you find is that whatever the genes are doing, it's very general in that it will predispose you to have synesthesia, but the way it manifests itself uh, can be very different amongst family members. And it's not just that the mother thinks that the letter A is red and the daughter thinks that the letter A is green or something like this. It might be that you have completely different uh, combinations of synesthesia within the same family. So what the genes are doing is almost creating a particular brain type um, uh, of creating these unusual experiences, unusual associations. Uh, and the way it manifests itself in different individuals is either to do with chance or to do with some kind of uh, yeah, exposure in the environment or maybe interactions between synesthesia genes and non-synesthesia genes, for example. Yeah, so I, I think what we can say is that the, probably what the genes are doing, it's affecting the, the way that the brain is wired. But what it might do is that it might affect different parts of the brain. So for some people, it mm. might be more visual areas of the brain that get wired together. 
and other, for other people it might be parts of the brain involved in touch or involved in taste. So it might so, be that the genes are doing the same thing to different people, but they're just affecting different right. circuits uh, of the brain. So uh, that's perhaps the way we would think about it. So, the, you know, the same genes might give rise to very different w- profiles, but it's acting in similar ways in the sense of generating novel connections uh, mm-hmm. within the brain. So what? Uh, how many specific genes do we believe or have been implicated in synesthesia? At the moment, we know that synesthesia has a genetic basis, uh, but there seems to be multiple genes involved. And at the moment, there are researchers in uh, the Netherlands who are aiming to get the, ge- the genetic makeup of a thousand synesthetes in order to really um, pin what are the synesthesia genes and what they're doing. So at the moment, there are about uh, 800 people out of the thousand that they need to do this uh, whole scan of the genome. And that will start to yield kind of more powerful answers. And that will also kind of open up new lines of research. So we can ask um, the, the genes that are get, get, give rise to synesthesia, do they give rise to other kinds of uh, unusual experiences, such as perfect pitch in music or other kinds of uh, different developmental conditions, for example, there might be overlap between synesthesia and those. Uh, and we can actually start to understand synesthesia more at the molecular level, which we don't at the moment. So really, I, I think it's unclear, but we do know that there will be several genes that predispose to synesthesia and not just one or two. Mm-hmm. Well, because you mentioned that uh, the brain architecture is something about connectivity, right? So what do people think that these genes code for? Well, what we know kind of independently of the genetics is that if we take the brains of people with synesthesia, that there are differences there. But the differences are quite subtle. You, they're kind of at the millimeter scale. So you don't look at a synesthetic's brain and notice it looks completely different with the eye. You actually have to use, again, sophisticated imaging techniques. But what you tend to find that's different in the synesthetic brain is that it tends to be more rather than less. Um, so what we mean here is that there are certain parts of the brain that tend to have more gray matter in them. So if your synesthesia experiences color, you will have more gray matter in parts of your visual brain involved in seeing colors. And you're actually better at seeing colors than other people, not just synesthetically. You can, hmm. for example, tell two shades of green apart that other people might say look the same to them. A synesthete would be able to notice them as different. Um, and they also would have uh, more organized white matter. So white matter is what connects different parts of the brain together. So these changes in gray matter and white matter aren't global, but nor are they just in one or two places. It's kind of almost like a patchy uh, story that there are certain, um, certainly five or six regions of the brain that regularly come out as being involved in uh, uh, synesthesia that, that have more gray matter and more white matter organization. These are parts of the brain involved in perception, but involved in linking uh, the senses together as well. Uh, so, so that's the, the basic story of of, uh, of this in, in synesthesia. So it's kind of more grey matter, more white matter organisation. This is probably caused by genes that affect the way that the brain is wired and structured. Okay, and then the idea of localization is it's because the genes are and your DNA everywhere, but it only they only get turned on in specific areas. Is that, that how this happens? Yes, that would be yes, exactly. I mean that that would be uh, the, the the way of thinking about it is that the the genes are perhaps expressed 
uh, differently in, in different parts of the brain, in, in different tissues in the body, and, and, and so on. It, that's exactly right. Uh, and at that level of detail, we, we simply don't know. But, but that would be the best guess mm-hmm. uh, as to how this is working. Yeah. So let's go back to what you were saying about, um, I guess, the regional localization of different areas involved in synesthesia processing. So you've mentioned crosstalk, or I guess the idea of cross-activation, where you said, what was it, that the area associated with with colors is close to another area in the brain associated with letters? Is that right? Yeah, letters and shapes. Yes, Letters and shapes. So could you tell us more about, um, I guess, how uh, how uh, this sort of theory uh, connects to and can explain different versions of synesthesia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've already mentioned how this can explain uh, patterns of kind of flavor. Um, so flavor and parts of the brain involved in spoken language are kind of uh, more anterior parts of the brain that are close to each other. And this will explain why when people taste words, similar uh, sounding words tend to have similar taste, whereas for colors, similarly spelled words will tend to have uh, similar uh, colors. Um, For other people having um, or thinking about sequences such as numbers, days or months, these will be um, spatial landscapes. So it's been suggested that parts of the brain in the parietal lobes involved in spatial perception Uh, is adjacent to parts of the brain involved in um, processing sequential concepts such as number and time, and that that's why these um, things get connected together in synesthetes. Um, So so it it can explain a number of uh, types of synesthesia, but some don't necessarily fit with that. So music and vision, for example, aren't next to each other in the brain. Uh, These are somewhat rarer types of synesthesia, so it's not necessarily the case that things next to each other always get connected. Hmm. Uh, And there are other examples. So synesthesia involving touch. Some people feel a touch on their own body, but they feel this almost socially. If they see somebody else being touched, they feel it on their own body. That's a mirror-touch synesthesia, right? Exactly. We call it mirror-touch synesthesia. This kind of thing. Some people don't like thinking of this as synesthesia because it seems like a a very normal exaggeration of what we all do, that we can all kind of map that on with empathy, whereas colours for letters seems like something more extraordinary. Uh, But the truth is we don't know fully how all these types of synesthesia are related. We know that they're genuine and we know that they have uh, this particular uh, patterns in the brain. So you mentioned uh, music and visual synesthesia, and those areas are, are not contiguous in the brain. Uh, is there any evidence that there are those white matter connections are stronger? Not the yeah, I, exactly. So there is evidence of, of differences in white matter between uh, uh, in people who have music. So there's a long range connection. So it can be longer range as well as short range. But we think, okay. for whatever reason, that a lot of uh, the most common types of synesthesia are the more short range connections in the brain. So connections in gray matter and white matter just yeah long. yeah 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 Sh- shorter white matter and yes and within the gray okay. matter itself so the gray matter is your synapses and your white matter is your axons but both are kind of connections in that sense moving on in order to do this research you need to have people with synesthesia so how do you go about actually diagnosing and identifying potential participants for your research I, that's a really good question and 
synesthesia has been quite a slippery thing over the years because it's essentially a subjective experience. People are saying, I experience colours when I look at numbers, and then 99% of people say, well, I don't, so why should you believe this minority of people? Um, it's a, so it's a very interesting kind of problem from a scientific point of view. How do you prove that somebody's inner world is how they say it is? Um, there are various tests that, that we've done. So if we take the example of uh, colours for letters and numbers, graphene colour synesthesia, if, you, um, if somebody thinks that the letter 5 is red and you show a letter 5 in green and you ask somebody what colour is that, they will give you the correct answer. They'll say it's green, but they'll be slower um, than uh, people who don't have synesthesia and slower than themselves when you give them the letter 5 in red, which for them might be the right colour. So you can show that they have this interference, that there's something that, um, that is preventing them. In that case, it's giving them a, a conflict uh, that they, uh, they're slow at processing the real colour because there's something in the back of the mind saying, hang on, that's not the real colour. Mm. Um, that, this is uh, the Stroop effect, correct? That's, this is a the psychological phenomenon. So, yeah, exactly, that's right. So we measure that in terms of reaction times. What we also find is that synesthetes are very consistent in their colour associations. So if you think that the letter 5 is red, it might be a very precise shade of red and it won't change over time. Whereas if we give it to people who don't have synesthesia, um, you ask them to choose a colour for 5, they might say it's red. You ask them again, they might say it's green. They don't care. They don't know what it is. Um, so a synesthete will be very precise uh, and, and consistent. And, and it's not that necessarily all people with synesthesia have uh, amazing memory. Well, they do the have good memory, actually, yes. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, so, so we don't think that that's why they're passing the test, but they, synesthetes do have good memory, mm -hmm. um, that, that's for sure. Uh, they, um, yeah, they have more vivid memory. They tend to think in, uh, in images uh, so not only do words, for example, ha evoke visual images, for example, in some people, their memories uh, are very sensory based. They, if they're thinking about the time they went to a restaurant, they see the inner layout of the restaurant, they imagine the smells and so on. And again, you know, some people without synesthesia don't do this as well. It's not unique to synesthetes, but it's on the upper end of the normal distribution in terms right. of Right. Uh, it's like they memory. automatically use these mnemonic strategies that have to be taught to people like like me that would be one way of thinking about it exactly so for example there's a famous case study of somebody called daniel tanner to remember the digits of pi to twenty thousand decimal places um you know he, he did have to train himself you know it wasn't an automatic thing but what was interesting about him is the way in which he re uh, recalled it and for him each digit would have its own color uh, but uh, and its own kind of texture and shape, but he would imagine a kind of a landscape in his mind's eye of 3.1415, where all the digits are their own particular colour. So it's almost like reading back this visual image. Uh, hmm. so, so he again, you know, created people... synesthesia for himself, or he—it's like he used different. Yes. So basically, if you were to um, to memorize the digits of pi, which you could do, I mean, it might be more effort than it would be for Daniel. The way you would do it is that you would put digits in certain locations. So maybe you imagine walking from your home to your workplace and you put this digit in this house, that digit in the other house. So you can create these kinds of strategies. Uh, but you're 
uh, what Daniel's doing is that he's taking his synesthesia and he's kind of hanging the memory on that. And this is one of the reasons why he can do that. But even without, you can use your synesthesia kind of as a strategy, as a memory aid. But people with synesthesia do have better uh, memory in general. We don't think that that's why they have synesthesia in the first place, but there's something different about the brain of synesthesia. So now we think it's about thinking in visual images or having a more finely tuned visual system that it creates these associations, but it can also hold on to uh, real associations as well. Mm-hmm. And are there any other cognitive and health benefits associated with synesthesia? Um, one of the things that we find is that they tend to have uh, better perception for certain things. I already mentioned that people who have synesthetic colors are better at perceiving colors. Um, they're also better at perceiving some things which are, to some people, kind of borderline invisible. So they're very weak. They're very faint on the computer screen. Uh, and we find that synesthetes are good at spotting those. And it's not their eyes. It really is their brains uh, that are good at detecting visual information. So it's almost as if synesthesia um, begins from uh, other kinds of cognitive processes involved in memory and perception, that maybe this is kind of one of the starting points, as well as having the connectivity story that we talked about, that they actually have a more finely tuned visual system that can create these associations uh, and enable them to uh, to see differently both the real world, but also creating these uh, what you might think of as illusory experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any Achilles heels or, or you know, any aspects of, of too much sensory information that's reported in, in these synesthetes? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, certainly um, when people ask about synesthesia, they think, wow, they must be so overwhelmed by all their uh, sensations and so on. But really, um, our brains are quite good at filtering um, information. So all the time, our our senses are bombarded, and we have uh, our attentional system, which can tune into particular things. So although synesthetic colors and tastes are always there, people with synesthesia can choose to kind of ignore them or not, typically. Um, But certainly, maybe in in children, maybe, uh, you know, having these experiences might be more overwhelming. One of the things that I've been asked about over the years is synesthesia linked to autism, and I'd always thought that it wasn't, but now there is evidence that it seems to be. Uh, but, but it's linked to particular aspects of autism, and it seems to be linked to some aspects of sensory overload, so finding certain sounds and lights uh, intense and aversive rather than the more traditional symptoms of autism involved in problems in uh, communicating with others and understanding what other people are thinking. It seems to be more the sensory symptoms of autism that the synesthetes have. So there is an element of this um, that, that, uh, that, that the world feels quite intense. And it's not just to do with the synesthesia being intense. Just simple lights and sounds can feel very intense, even if they don't trigger a, a synesthetic experience. That's one of the uh, interesting things that we've found. Well, that's all the time we have today, but we're definitely looking forward to the new research that comes out on this and, and learning more about it. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a fascinating topic. Thank you. It's been really nice talking to you. If you're listening and thinking, hey, that sounds like me, maybe I have synesthesia, or you already know you have synesthesia and want to find out more information, or even if you want to participate in any research trials, regardless of where you live, you can navigate to www.sussex.ac.uk 
slash synesthesia. Now that is synesthesia spelled the British way with an A in there. So that's S-Y-N-A-E-S-T-H-E-S-I-A. If you didn't catch that, you can find that link and more on the show notes for this episode at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 